You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Attackers are going after the data. The data is worth money. So to that degree, there's a large extent of what can insurance do to be able to help offset some of the damage and the cost. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the Restrict Act, a bill making its way through Congress. I've got the story of folks calling for a pause in generative AI experimentation. And later in the show, my conversation with Lee Rossi, CTO of SimSpace, to discuss cyber attacks and whether or not they're still insurable. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to cover this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So I would like to talk about this bill making its way through Congress, the so-called Restrict Act. And you know if it's Congress, it means we got a great acronym, and this is (laughs) no exception. (laughs) The Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information and Communications Technology Act. Wow. I'm going to give it a B plus. Okay. Those interns are hard at work coming up with these things, right? Yeah. I've definitely seen better, but I've definitely seen worse. Okay. Uh, This bill was proposed at the beginning of March by uh, Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, and Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota. And I think in the public's mind, this was a bill to institute a ban on TikTok. Right. That's what most people associate it uh, with. And it kind of came as uh, the introduction of this bill came at the around the same time that the TikTok CEO testified in front of Congress and did a pretty terrible job. So I think that kind of lumped together in people's mind that TikTok was in trouble. To be fair, Congress didn't exactly uh, put themselves in the best light in that either, right? No, nobody looked good, (laughs) Uh, except us commentators uh, gave us a lot to talk about. Right. Uh, But for those who were present at the hearing, uh, it certainly did not go well for either TikTok CEO or, uh, or any members of Congress. Right. So this Restrict Act does more than simply ban TikTok. In fact, it doesn't explicitly ban TikTok at all. Hmm. The word TikTok or its parent company, ByteDance, or even social media itself, those are not mentioned in the legislation. Hmm. Instead, the bill gives the power to the Secretary of Commerce to, quote, review and prohibit certain transactions between persons in the United States and foreign adversaries regarding information and communications technology. So the way the bill works is that the Secretary of Commerce would have authorization to identify, deter, disrupt, prevent, prohibit, investigate, or otherwise mitigate, including by negotiating, entering into, or imposing 
<sighs> you know, run out of breath, <laughs> or enforcing any mitigation measures to address any risk uh, arising from any covered uh, transaction by any person or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. If uh, this threat comes from either one of the identified foreign adversaries or a if uh, the secretary through a special committee identifies a new foreign adversary, then they could take similar action. Hmm. So the purpose of this bill is to empower the secretary to restrict applications like TikTok that are allegedly controlled by foreign powers. So ByteDance is controlled by the Chinese government. This is the nature of uh, Congress's concern, and I think that's the impetus behind this piece of legislation. Yeah. When this was first introduced, I think there was pretty bipartisan support for the idea of banning TikTok, even though to many of us who are not involved in politics, it seems like a pretty radical thing to do, Hmm. especially with uh, 200-some-odd million users. Mm -hmm. Um, But both Democrats and Republicans in Congress think that there's a major national security threat that one of our most popular applications is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, in in so many words, at least. Yeah. Uh, But there's been kind of a pushback, and the article uh, I'm using for this segment comes from Reason.com, which is a libertarian uh, blog website, and Mm. they wrote on potential unintended consequences of the Restrict Act. For one, uh, it would impose civil and or criminal penalties on users who tried to evade the bans on these applications uh, by using something like a VPN to log on to a TikTok or any other application that were banned under this statute. Uh, And this is really one of the purposes of the legislation. Uh, If we're going to actually ban something, we want to make it Uh, punishable or at least uh, impose some type of civil or or criminal penalty on individuals who try to evade that ban using a VPN. Mm. Uh, But that certainly would be a major inhibition on people's privacies, uh, especially privacy professionals and those uh, who have taken an interest in digital privacy believe strongly in the power of VPNs, of concealing one's identity uh, online. Uh, It's important for research purposes. It's important to maintain digital privacy. So even the threat of criminalizing the use of VPNs is something that uh, certainly sticks out to those of us who are concerned about this issue. Um, The civil penalties we're talking about here can be rather hefty, $250,000. The criminal penalties would be up to 20 years in prison. That's more than murder. It it is more than (laughs) certainly something like second-degree murder or voluntary manslaughter. I mean, it's— Kind of somewhat crazy. Okay. Uh, now, in order to actually be punished for that, you would have to be engaged in sabotage or subversion of communications technology. Um, that would be really hard to prove, mm-hmm. but if there were a Justice Department that wanted to set an example, and we've seen stuff like this happen in the past, they mm-hmm. could really throw the book at somebody for simply logging on to one of these banned applications using a VPN. Yeah. Uh, Then the other threat is that, you know, this is supposed to be targeted to international actors. So applications are companies that are controlled by our foreign adversaries. Uh, But it could also be employed against uh, new adversaries that the government itself identifies. So we're giving the power to a 
the Secretary of Commerce and a special government board to determine who those foreign adver- uh, adversaries are. And there are no clear criteria in establishing what counts as a foreign adversary for the purpose of this bill. So there's concern, uh, and this is expressed in this recent article, that the bill could be used to block or disrupt something like cryptocurrency transactions hmm. or Americans' access to open source tools or protocols. And that's something that would fully be within the purview of the executive branch once it's granted authority under this bill. And that would go far beyond banning one uh, problematic application. Uh, So, you know, if the director of national intelligence and the secretary of commerce decided they wanted to punish even a Western democracy just because they didn't think they were cracking down on cryptocurrency, even if it was the European Union, at least theoretically, that's something that could be done as part of this legislation. So we're leaving a lot of discretion in the hands of uh, the federal government and the Secretary of Commerce, I think more so than people are comfortable with. And that's something that could be ripe for abuse under the right circumstances. Um, You could certainly think of an example where this this power could be used to crush political dissent in one way or another. You could Mm -hmm. have a flimsy justification that it's connected to a uh, foreign adversary, and it could be used against domestic applications. You know, one example I think might set off alarm bells, uh, certainly in a place like Fox News, and it has set off alarm bells at a place like Fox News, is what if the Biden administration decided that Truth Social was closely connected with the Russian government and that it should be banned in the United States because they, in their view, Donald Trump, the CEO or whatever he is of Truth Social, is beholden to the Russian government. Mm-hmm. That would be major suppression on a pretty commonly used social network and right. uh, would be silencing people based on their political views. So it's certainly a threat, and I think it's going to be problematic for uh, the prospects of this piece of legislation. What about the, just the basic uh, First Amendment issues here? The, the, the government is limiting how you can communicate. I've seen people raise that argument. Does that hold water in your estimation? Yeah, we take the First Amendment very seriously in this country. Uh, The language of the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. In terms of whether this would pass legal muster under the First Amendment, it's uncertain because we've never had a case like this. We've never had an example of the government shutting down such a popular global social network that it has such a major inhibition on people's free speech rights. Um, The government has been granted authority, uh, similar authority in the past to uh, take action against companies through the FTC, the FCC that are, uh, that have a nexus with international powers, but never on this scale. So I don't know whether courts would see this as a major inhibition on the First Amendment. My thinking is that it is uh, because it has become become such a public square and an outright ban from the government on this very popular form of communication would seem to me to be a major inhibition on on speech. Now, courts might see this as a content-neutral prohibition. Um, They're not just prohibiting certain speech on TikTok. They'd be prohibiting all speech on TikTok. Uh, And there are many other avenues. I mean, in a court's mind, they could just say, well, why don't you use an application that's similar to TikTok, but that's not controlled by the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. Um, But that itself creates a a slippery slope. Uh, And the reality is that 
people don't use different applications uh, to the same scale they use TikTok. So there would at least be a transition period where people's free speech could be suppressed. Uh, So I think that's uh, certainly a First Amendment concern and something that I think has been underemphasized in uh, the contemplation of this legislation. The other uh, counter argument that I've seen, and there was a a really good uh, editorial in the New York Times this week, and uh, uh, forgive me, I can't remember uh, who wrote it, but um, the case they were making was that we're really going after the wrong thing here, that what we need is some sort of federal privacy legislation because if you ban TikTok and the Chinese government wants to know where you're going, who you're talking to, or all those other things we've talked about here so often, they can just go buy it on the open market. Like it's banning TikTok doesn't stop. It may make it less convenient for the Chinese government if this is what they're after, but by no means does it stop them from getting what they want. No, it's like trying to, you know, stop somebody who's hemorrhaging blood by just putting a tiny little Band-Aid on their finger. Mm-hmm. It's addressing, uh, it's it's sort of the lowest hanging fruit that Congress could address mm-hmm. because this is such, It's in their view, it's egregious that they have such a close nexus to the Chinese government. But really, this is an issue, as we've said, probably in 20 prior episodes of not ha- of just not having a federal data privacy uh, law that would cover not just TikTok, but all applications that are playing fast and loose with our personal data. It would be better to have a comprehensive law that covers all threats, both foreign and domestic, to the integrity of our data uh, that would give users uh, rights over the data that they provide to these companies that would put restrictions on sales uh, to third parties, but that's not what's happening here. I think this is just an easier target for Congress to go after. They're taking advantage of it without doing the hard work of coming to a uh, some sort of compromise agreement that's eluded them over the past several years for uh, comprehensive federal data privacy legislation. So, you know, I, I almost think that this is a cop-out with uh, just kind of taking the easy way out and avoiding the hard work that they really tried to do in the last session of Congress, but couldn't get across the finish line. Hmm. Um, So I I certainly am sympathetic to that perspective, even though you can recognize that TikTok does bring with it uh, unprecedented levels of risk, considering how many users it has and how closely uh, it is monitored by the Chinese government. But again, these are all problems that would be better addressed with a comprehensive federal data privacy law uh, and not something like the Restrict Act, which is trusting the federal government and our agencies uh, to police applications that it finds objectionable or that uh, it finds are are controlled by foreign adversaries. What do you suppose the odds are of this making it through? How, How are things looking right now? So I would have said several weeks ago that we were looking at like a 60, 70% chance of this passing. Mm-hmm. They were talking about in the Senate uh, Commerce Committee going through markup. Given that there's been this backlash, particularly a backlash on the political right, I'm more like a 30 now okay. uh, hmm. thinking that, you know, when there is a monkey wrench thrown into legislation in the form of organized opposition – Congress is really good at not doing things. <laughs> so inertia it is their fa- their favorite thing to do is nothing. <laughs> right. Inertia kicks in. You know, they right. asked the chairwoman of the Senate Commerce Committee, Maria Cantwell of Washington, if she was going to proceed with a markup on this bill. And she was pretty lukewarm on it. She was like, oh, you know, I'm still considering it. We're going to read through it. Let's take a step back and try and get this right. Mm-hmm. 
We don't know if the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives is going to be on board. Certainly, there were indications when the bill first came out that they were supportive of it. But, you know, whether that's going to be reconsidered since Jesse Waters on Fox News, one of their highest rated primetime shows, did a full segment on how dangerous the Restrict Act was. You know, Mm, I wonder mm -hmm. if that changes the calculus there. Right. There was this funny moment on Jesse Waters' show where he was interviewing Lindsey Graham uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and said, basically, here are all the terrible things that a Restrict Act does. Why do you support this? And Lindsey Graham was like, do I support this? And really? uh, Jesse Waters was like, well, your name's on it. You're a co-sponsor. And, and Lindsey Graham was like, oh, I'm going to have to look into that for you. It's <laughs> uh, just one of those hilarious members <laughs> right. of Congress are controlled by their staff things. Right. Apparently, he is still a co-sponsor. Okay. Um, but I think the indication there is... Congress has a lot of issues they need to work through, uh, and now that there is organized opposition, I think um, something like this faces a much tougher road than it it would have seemed a a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So frustrating. So frustrating. I know. I know. (laughs) All right. Well, we will have a link uh, to that story in the show notes, of course. All right, so my story this week comes from the folks over at SC Media. This is uh, an article by Sebastian Guttall, Uh, And it's titled, Why We Must Hit Pause on Generative AI Experiments. Uh, This notion has been making the rounds. We saw uh, a letter from, I want to say, a a bunch of well-known tech leaders. I want to say, like, Steve Wozniak was on the list of of folks who have— Didn't Elon Musk sign on to it? Could have been. Yeah. Could have been. Yeah. So, you know, maybe not fair to say the usual suspects in this case, but folks who are of note who— uh, have some experience and noteworthiness when it comes to tech things, have gotten on board with this idea of putting a pause. In this case, uh, they're talking about a nonprofit called the Future of Life Institute. Uh, they published an open letter calling for a six-month pause to study the effects of generative AI and how we can innovate more responsibly. The idea here is that things like ChatGPT, th- um, things like Dolly, which is a image generator, Uh, These have kind of been released onto the public, and the public, of course, has been captivated by them. I know I have. And uh, we're playing with them, and we're finding all of these things that these things can do. Um, GPT-4, for example, you know, I think it's sort of like the 90th percentile of the bar exams, something like that. I mean, Beat beat me, probably. (laughs) I'll never know my actual score, but certainly uh, (laughs) I would guess ChatGPT 4.0 exceeded my capabilities. Right. So the notion here is to stop uh, development on these while we figure out how we want them to fit into our lives uh, and do so in a responsible manner. Um, I guess there's a part of me that understands the impulse here, but I'm really having a hard time seeing how this could possibly happen on a practical level, uh, given our global marketplace. If, If we hit pause here in the United States... China's not going to pause. You know, Russia's not going to pause. Who who else is not going to pause? Um, what do you make of this, Ben? Do you is uh, do you agree with me that the impulse is coming from the right place, but it might be hard to implement? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, I think we have yet to under fully understand the consequences of generative AI. It is so new. I mean, they talk about in this article how it's affecting professions ranging from art, teaching, journalism, uh, the legal profession, real estate, software development. Uh, 
and whether this has the potential to actually displace workers uh, or create uh, additional negative societal impacts um, beyond just losing jobs, things like uh, copyright violations, uh, appropriating people's creative work uh, through generative AI. These are things that we haven't thought of because we've had this sort of dynamic process of developing the technology. And I mean, ChatGPT admitted that this was basically beta testing when they first put it out. People Mm -hmm. have loved it. (laughs) Uh, And the software over the last several months has continued to develop. From a practical perspective, you're exactly right. I mean, we can't just press the pause button. There's no like global order where there's some governing body that demands that all innovators pause for six months and show up at a couple of meetings in Davos to discuss the ethics of generative AI. That body doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It's a collective action problem. If, let's say, ChatGPT decided that it wanted to, um, in the parlance of our former president, uh, take a pause to figure out what the blank is going on out there. (laughs) they would lose their position in the competitive marketplace. Maybe Microsoft, through Bing and its generative AI, uh, would decide not to take the pause, and it would advance leaps and bounds. Or, as you said, uh, foreign countries, certainly particularly ones that we're not friendly with, would never comply with a self-imposed six-week, uh, six-month moratorium where we figure out some of the legal, ethical, and, and policy issues around uh, AI. I mean... There is an understandable level of concern and panic, but I don't think that's a particularly realistic nor achievable goal uh, in trying to solve some of these problems. How do you suppose we could go forward then? I mean, understanding that this is a problem, uh, or but certainly a potential problem. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't think it's overstating it that to, to say that it's possible that this is an inflection point, right? Just for for humanity. It and is. I know that sounds like a breathless thing to say, but um, it's plausible that it might be. And so should we be careful? Yes. But I'm not sure how we can, how do we put this genie back in the bottle? And do we want to? And I don't know if you, yeah, I don't know if you can put the genie back in the bottle. The technology's out there. People are going to use it. Um, if we were to impose a six-month ban, I'm sure uh, some enterprising cyber criminal could put together uh, their own uh, uh, their own system and, or their own generative AI and make a profit uh, from taking a, taking that space in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, beyond the concerns that we've already talked about, there are cybersecurity concerns. Uh, One of the things this article talks about is uh, Microsoft Research ran a series of experiments on GPT-4, and in one experiment, um, these researchers actually executed a cyber attack that hacked a computer on a local network. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was the AI that conducted the cyber attack. Yeah. So that's just an example of all the threats that we have yet to discover. Uh, I don't know that there's certainly no way to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I think it's fine to set up informal ethics review boards, get some of the brightest minds in the room uh, to try and address these issues. But you're not going to do that with some type of six-month unrealistic pause. Um, I think we have reached an inflection point. I mean, I think people are 
dismissive of the inflection point talk because we've heard that with other forms of technology in the past. Right. Um, but generative AI is very different. Uh, we've never had artificial intelligence that's actually creating something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's where this is so exciting slash scary for people uh, that it's that it's moving so quickly. Do you think there are parallels here when you think about like medical ethics, you know, just because we can doesn't mean that we should and and there need to be guardrails on some of these things? Yes, although I'll say, you know, in the COVID experience, that we basically had, had developed a very rigorous process for the approval of vaccination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it had to go through several years of institutional review. There were phase one studies, phase two studies. When there was a demand uh, during the COVID period for a type of operation warp speed where we could skip over a bunch of those steps and get an awesome 90% effective vaccine onto the market, people were fine moving at this lightning pace. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if because the tools are out there and they're so useful, I mean, certainly the marketplace uh, would support their use. We know that ChatGPT is is very popular. It's performing a lot of functions that people find valuable. Maybe that will supersede the need uh, to go through some of these institutional steps to protect the integrity of generative AI. Um, I guess that's just kind of a warning sign that all of the people standing atop the mountain uh, yelling stop, aren't, those people aren't always on the winning side when it comes to these things. Yeah. Um, we have, even though you're right that uh, in the past we've done medical experimentation where we should have considered the ethical and uh, moral implications of that type of research, it, it has happened because there's been a demand for it. And that doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just kind of the reality. And we're dealing in a, unlike the medical field, in relatively unregulated space. I mean, there's no governing board controlling AI. Um, we have federal agencies that might dip their toes into it, but it's not like we have institutional players that we do in the medical field, like CMS. I mean, this is comparatively the wild, wild west here. Yeah. Um, so I just don't know that we have the capability to, to just stand in front of this train and say stop. Reminds me of the interview I had with um, Richard Clark uh, about his book about Cassandras, you know, the people who uh, sounded the alarm, uh, you know, had the warnings, and everyone poo-pooed them, and they, they turned out to be right. Yeah, usually the people who are poo-pooed in the uh, in the beginning, like Richard Clark, who was poo-pooed through several presidential administrations, <laughs> right. um, very frequently they end up being vindicated. So I'm not saying that the people who signed this letter, and again, these are very prominent people, they're not wrong. I mean, we, we are in uncharted territory. This does present uh, a great level of risk that we mm-hmm. just don't understand. I just don't think their prescription here is viable nor uh, necessarily something that we want. Um, I think we can have a separate conversation among some of the big players in the field about ethics and the implications of of what we're doing, but I don't think you can just throw a wrench into the creative process here. Hmm. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss here on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com.
And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Lee Rossi. He is the CTO of an organization called SimSpace. And our conversation centers on insurance and whether cyber attacks are insurable. Here's my conversation with Lee Rossi. In general, you know, more and more of the data is on, is on the computer systems. So uh, a lot of the companies have built up, um, you know, more and more of the information in, in, in applications or services that are traditionally within their networks or in the cloud and do that. And historically, you know, the data was, you know, not that well defended. People have been getting better at actually defending and building it all up. But I would say that uh, it used to be just the big boys, the large insurers, the militaries that really cared and understood about the security and the importance of the data. But now every business and every company um, has, has, has data in their computer systems that they need to protect and maintain their run. So there's not a single company, there's not very many companies now that are not dependent on, on a large part on, on IT systems, whether it's on-prem and in the cloud, to be able to run and maintain their businesses. So with that, um, as the attackers look for where the money and where the data is, they go after, as usual, the weakest targets. And historically, the weakest targets were the financials. That's where the money was. They shored up the defenses. Now they're going after, I would say, the ones who are not as strong and, and continue to go after that. And in my mind, the progression was, hey, let's go after where the money is, which is the banks. So they've been targeting the banks years ago. They've improved their defenses. Then they go after you know, other industries, so uh, medium, large-scale enterprises, and, and they improved. And then finally, in my mind right now, one of the weaker areas is the, um, the ICS or the OT side. So there's a lot of manufacturing, industrial control systems, oil refinery, power and gas that maybe are decent on the IT side, but they're not that well off on the OT security. And with all the access that people are making available, IT systems generally want to be connected and Opening up previously, I'll say, ISA and air-gapped environments for various reasons um, is now opening up the attacks for, sorry, opening up the surface for attacks to be able to get in and target them. So, yep, attackers are going after the data. The data is worth money. So to that degree, there's a large extent of what can insurance do to be able to help offset some of the damage and the costs. And probably we can get into that in a second. But that was, I guess, my semi-long-winded answer. (laughs) Well, in in terms of the insurance marketplace, I mean, what's available and and who is buying for it? Where do we stand there? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of cyber insurance out there. I will say that in general, uh, everybody, most people are getting to some degree cyber insurance, but the requirements to be able to get it are actually going up, and justly so. 
Uh, whenever an insurance company is perhaps losing more money uh, than they're bringing in, they're going to start tightening things up. So the requirements to be able to get insurance are going up, which is a good thing. And to get insurance, they're demanding that companies show that they're doing a better job at providing some defenses uh, to be able to do that. Because you know, no insurance company wants to be able to just say, hey, uh, sure, I'll give you X, X amount of money for a very weak setup. It's kind of like insuring... I'm going to make my stupid analogy, but with climate change that we were just talking about, ensuring people on the shore that you know you're going to get flooded every other year. So that's just, um, you're asking for damage. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, regular listeners of this show will will know that I've often wondered if uh, if cyber insurance is going the way of flood insurance in that it's, you know, the federal government are the only ones who are out there backing up flood insurance because it's not... It, it's not reasonable for the private sector to absorb those costs. The costs are so astronomical when they happen. It's not a bet private industry is willing to make. Um, I, I think there's, again, I have no issue, you know, experts in insurance, but my feeling is it's probably halfway, it's probably going to end up to some degree there. Having said that, and my general view is there's two types of cyber attacks. There's the high probability ones that have low impact. And I'm going to put that in the case of ransomware and things like that, that, you know, the attacks are going to hit you. You know you're going to get it at some point, and you're going to pay out some money to do that. And then the other one is the low probability attacks that are going to be high impact. And what I mean by those, those are more the strategic attacks. So picture the ones that some a determined adversary, a nation state, is going to want to get in and take you out and cripple your business, beyond cripple, take, just wipe you off the face of the map, if you will, on that one. And what I mean by those are hitting a power company in a really bad time to really disrupt, uh, you know, the stuff that's going on. So let's just say if you're at war, hitting the city of Boston during a snowstorm and taking out the power company, they're not doing that for ransom. They're doing that to inflict pain on the city and the population. So in that case, what do you do about both the low probability, but, you know, high impact, but also the ones that are going to be the commonplace? And for the commonplace, I think companies can do a better job at improving their security, but there should be no expectation that, a company can defend against the sophisticated nation state that is willing to all say, take them out. And, and we can talk in a second. I think there are ways that companies can really improve their security without necessarily changing their budget that will give the confidence to insurance companies that, hey, this is now a worthwhile investment, if you will, to, to insure this, this organization. And I can expand on that if you'd like. Yeah, I'm curious. Do we have a sense for... How many organizations are taking advantage of cyber insurance? Have we reached the point where it's a majority? I think it is. I, I just reading up a little bit on the area. I think most people have cyber insurance. The requirements to get it are higher. There's more exclusions, but I think most of them have insurance at this point. The question is: Is it enough to cover? And and what are they? What are they really paying out? Yeah. Is this, uh, you sort of mentioned that th- this may be a good carrot for the organizations, the you know, the insurance companies saying, hey, if you want to be insured, you have to put these things in place. That seems to me like a good way to lead people along here. I, I, I think it is. I think, and maybe there's ones where people have had insurance and they got it, but any new policy, the requirements, and maybe the renewal, the requirements are really going up to be able to get, I'll say, a good price. It's like, you don't want to do anything, you don't want to show me anything, A, I may not give you coverage, or the premium is going to be really high. But if the insurance company gets confidence and sees evidence that they're really improving their security, then it's, um, I think then it's a lot more palatable. But people have insurance. Um, 
Yeah, a bunch of people have insurance. Companies have insurance. What are your recommendations then? I mean, in, in terms of the things organizations can do to better protect themselves? Yeah, I think, um, this is my opinion over here, obviously. So I think a number of companies have made investments in cybersecurity and they continue to do that. And speaking a little bit historically, they have bought a lot of tools. They've recognized that they need to have people to be able to run them. So it's not like people are doing nothing. They're, they're spending the money. They're recognizing the potential loss in terms of reputational risk, dollars, other things. So they are investing the money. The question, though, now is how are you making sure that the investment is good and you're actually improving? And let me, let me make a little bit, uh, let me build on that. Throwing more money at the problem isn't necessarily going to help fix it per se. So in other words, buying more tools and buying more uh, stuff doesn't help. What I think shop needs to be able to do is figure out what are the right tools that you want to be able to actually focus in on. And these can be by area, your firewalls, your network detection response, your endpoint protection. What are those right set of tools? And then here's the key is, how do I make sure that the security team members that I have in my SOC and other things are really skilled and proficient with those tools to be able to rapidly uh, detect and respond? The longer somebody is in your network, the more likelihood the damage is going to be. And I'm going to assume that organizations are going to get breached. So assume they get in. Now the question is, how do you reduce the dwell time or how do you keep them? How do you detect it as quick as possible? One challenge is I think many shops have way more tools. I already know that. Many shops have way more tools than they need. So they spent a lot on tools. But if you assume that the real damage is post-breach, then the question is, it's the operators that have to be able to rapidly know how to leverage those tools, detect the attacks, and then knock them out or restore it before they can really get too damaging. So in my mind, it's the right tools, which means means fewer tools, but operators with the right skills to be able to actually really take advantage of them. And then part two is we can't think of it as an individual sport. It's more like, in my mind, football or anything else. You have to have great individual players, a great quarterback, running back, offensive lineman, but it's, a, it's the team that wins the games. It's the teams that's able to kind of rapidly pull everybody together, figure out what's going on. So your, so your host guy, your network guy, your firewall guy, your seam guy, rapidly converging on, on what may be looking uh, suspicious, identifying and remedying it out. So effective and well-trained teams with the right tools is a much better strategy in my mind to be able to do that. And then the question becomes, how do you build up strong, effective teams to do that? So in my mind, people have made investments in tools, made investments in people, but now how do you actually make sure that they're an effective and ready team? And that doesn't come with throwing five more tools at it to do it. More tools basically means more distractions because the team can't can't focus in on the real stuff. Yeah, I'm curious, getting back to what you touched on with things like OT and, and IT security, you know, critical infrastructure, keeping the lights on, all, all that sort of stuff. I, I realize I, I risk stretching the analogy here, but um, is there or should there be some sort of federal backstop here, you know, a cyber equivalent to FEMA? Probably. Um, yeah, and, and especially for um, the regulated industries and... And the ones that say the utilities, the the power company, the other ones that don't have like these massive budgets to be able to actually put into that. Their margins, I think, are pretty low to do that. But I'd say that there's a couple of trends here that independent of the FEMA-like things that they can actually do uh, to protect themselves. So the OT portion of it has generally not had a lot of cybersecurity on there. They're, they're much more focused on maintaining 
well, keeping the production lines running, so um, keeping everything operating with, with not as much emphasis on the security. I think that's starting to change a little bit. Um, to, I'm talking about the specific OT portion of that side of it. But to that point is, since the security has been relatively weak, it's basically shifting the landscape for the attackers to be able to get into it and go through it. Colonial Pipeline is probably a good example. I think if I remember right, it was a Cobalt Strike, a $3,500 attack tool was used to get into the IT portion via no secured VPN. And that encrypted or that took offline the billing database of the billing system, which had nothing to do with the OT component per se, but they shut the system down for a couple of days um, because they couldn't actually figure out what was going on and how pervasive it was in there. But just like the rest of the financials and others, I think they the shops probably will do a better job at getting better, but at a certain point, like utilities probably not well equipped to deal with, with nation states. But they are equipped to deal with, they should be equipped to deal with like ransomware and annoyances. Where do you suppose we're headed here? Do you, do you anticipate something more towards an equilibrium? Over time, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think um, people are recognizing the problem. They are across sectors. They're starting to recognize the problem. They're putting investments into cybersecurity. They're now trying to optimize those investments. The attackers are going to continue to be there. Wherever the money is, that's where they're going to be going after or the strategic target. So as the defenses get better, the attacks get better, and, and we can continue through that. But even if you look at where we were 10, 20 years ago, I've been playing around in this for 20-some years. There really wasn't much security 20 years ago across these networks and these enterprises. And, and the intelligence, the DOD, others had a field day with trying to get in. The securities are getting a lot better. The teams are getting better. So I think over time, there probably will be an equilibrium to be able to do that. And, and it won't be just a few guys in the basement or a few guys just kind of taking out big companies. It's going to revert back to nation-states intelligence agencies that have to get into the really hard targets to do that. But but yeah, but I think I think there will be an equilibrium at some point. Ben, what do you think? It was a really good overview. I mean, I think one thing that's changed in the realm of cyber attacks over the last decade or so, as he said, it's no longer just the military or uh, these high-profile government or private sector institutions that are facing cyber attacks, many small and medium-sized businesses have valuable data, and they are now at risk as well. Um, I like how we talked about a, a – he used a football metaphor, which is always going to work with me. <laughs> um, but just having like a teamwork approach where it's not isolated individuals trying to solve the problem. It's um, a group of people both prior to a potential incident and after an incident uh, who will make things right. So I thought it was a, a really interesting interview. Yeah. Our thanks again to Lee Rossi for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. 
SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.